Turn with me, please, to John chapter 7. As we continue to work through the Gospel of John, there are many aspects to this book and to this Gospel, the message of Christ within it, that are confusing at first read. And especially when you come to John chapter 7, this is one of those. It is no exception to it. Why do we have these stories? Why is it that we have Jesus going up to the Feast of Tents, the Feast of Booths in the temple, establishing certain aspects of his teaching, of his personhood, the source of his words, his works, the source of his timing and mission? Why do we have all of these things? I will continually remind you that any time you come to the Gospel of John and ask yourself, why am I reading this story? Why am I reading this parable? Why am I reading this teaching? All of it is written with one singular purpose, and that is so that you, reader, may believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and live. Every single story. Which means the vast majority of what we get in the Gospel of John even when it's disgusting, narrative happenings has that as its goal. There was many other times and many other things that Jesus did. In fact, when we go from the close of John chapter 6 to the opening of John chapter 7, six months of time has elapsed. Six months. Not a word about it. John talks about this at the very end of the gospel of John and says there's many other things that Jesus of Nazareth did which... And then he, excuse me, uses hyperbole to express that if they were written down one by one, the world itself could not contain the books that were written. That's how he finishes off the Gospel of John. And he establishes that these things are written down so that you, reader, may know and believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come to give life that we cannot find on our own. He does not simply give bread so that people may be full. He gives bread to teach them about himself, the bread of heaven. He does not talk to people about the authority that he has simply to wave it around, but to show that the authority that he has sent with is unified and actually comes from the Father. The miracles that he does, the acts that he does, all of them depicting the nature of salvation. The very words that drip from his lips are words of eternal life. Things that these people have never heard before in this manner. Nobody has ever taught like this. Nobody has ever given signs like this. And the crowds are confused and the leaders are angry. And so John uses these stories to show us proper responses to Jesus and improper responses to Jesus. In our world, the typical supposed reverential response to Jesus is to call him a good teacher. He's got some nice stuff to say, I suppose. I don't want to offend anyone, but, you know, he's not God. Any of these things. That is the standard response if you go out on the street and ask someone who Jesus is. He's a good moral teacher, like many other moral teachers in history. Is that true? Yeah. Is that all that's true? Not by a long shot. 
And in fact, if that's all he is, then it's not true that he's a good moral teacher because he claims to be God on dozens of occasions. Good moral teachers don't teach that. So in retroflex, if he's not who he claims he is, he's not a good moral teacher at all. He's actually one of the worst. Because if he is not God, then he is blaspheming and he should be put to death. This is what confuses the crowds so much. Because it was really obvious to them what he was claiming. And then they look over at the leaders and they don't seem to have the ability to put him to death. And so they're looking back and forth. They're looking at the leaders. They're looking at what Jesus is saying. And they're talking amongst themselves. And John gives us a peer into their conversation. Some of their confusion. Isn't this the one that they're trying to kill? And here he is standing out in the open teaching these things. And they can't do anything. And Jesus addresses why they can't. We'll get to that. But that is the setting for all of this. And John is having us interact with this to say, it is not good enough to just be confused about who Christ is. If you truly are seeking the Father, and if the Father is truly drawing you in, you will recognize Christ. One of my favorite characters in all of the scriptures is a man named Simeon. A man that God ensured would recognize Christ before he was able to walk or talk. He recognized him as an eight-day-old baby in the temple. God ensured that those who truly followed him would recognize his son. This is why Jesus has said in verse 17, to remind you of last week, excuse me, the week before, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching that I say is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. If you truly want to do God's will, you will find Christ in full sync with the God who made this world. This is why when people say that maybe, maybe all the other religions of the world worship God without knowing it. Maybe they just call him a different name. Teach them about Christ and see what they do with him. Because if they accept him, then truly they have been worshiping one true God. If they reject him, they haven't been. The litmus test is very clear. As far as for mankind who claims to follow the one God who ruled this world, the question is, what is their response to Christ? And this is what John is having every one of his readers interact with. What is your response to Christ? You say that you are God-fearers. There is not a single person at the Feast of the Booths in the temple that day that would not claim to be following God, including the leaders that were seeking Jesus' life. And so John gives us the litmus test. Are we truly following God or our own pride? And Jesus says, if you're truly following God, you would listen to my words. So you would recognize them. It takes it out of our hands, doesn't it? It's humiliating on a certain level because we would like to imagine that our skepticism will actually solve the big questions of the universe. Yet in the Gospel of John, we're faced with people that define themselves by skepticism and the Lord Christ is always combating them. People like Nicodemus, people like Thomas at the very end, for those of us who know the resurrection story. 
These skeptical stories are not put in to say, here's the way to do this. Be very skeptical of Jesus. No. John is going to come forth and say, the reality of Jesus is if you say you're following God, you will follow Christ. There is no division amongst the Trinity with regards to this. And in the midst of the incarnation, people are revealing themselves left and right because he is showing everyone their hearts. For those of you who are in our study of the Holy Spirit this morning, the incarnate Christ, the servant of the Lord, was forecasted as not only bearing the Spirit of the Lord, but will come and be able to judge, not by what he sees or by what his ears hear, but to be able to judge with full right judgment. He was going to be able to discern the thoughts and intentions of people's hearts, divine abilities. He was going to come and express to everyone the real way of life itself. Not these other ways of life and bread that perishes, but no, in true, in true established, not even just miraculous bread, but he himself as the meal. The previous chapter focusing in on this, doesn't it? My body is true food, my blood is true drink. Those who believe in me will live forever. In another place, he warns us, those who seek to save their lives will lose them. But those who lose their lives for my sake, find it. Truly find life, and that more abundantly. That is the context in which we pick up this passage. It is found in John chapter 7, verses 25 through 31. Uh, and in a bit of a new thing, I also have it on the screen, um, if if your eyes are having trouble with you, you're welcome to follow along there as we read this passage. I would invite you to stand in honor of God and his word. John chapter 7, verses 25 to 31. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ. But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed grateful. Grateful for your word. Grateful for your intention to be merciful to those who humble themselves in your sight, that you may lift them up. Father, what pride is in us, we pray that you quash, that we may humble ourselves in your sight, and at due time you lift us up. May we fellowship with one another out of this intention. May we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ from that standpoint. We pray in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
The passage in question continually reminds the people of God that their perspective of things is not what determines reality. I want to say that again. Our perspective of things does not determine reality. Reality informs us. Reality asserts itself over and over again. If you don't believe me, keep trying to fly off of a roof. Reality will assert itself. It will continually show you that it doesn't matter what you believe you can do. It doesn't matter what things you have deluded yourself into thinking. God informs us of how the world works that he made. And still the pride of man rises up and says, not only can I defeat sin on my own, not only can I do this, but I can actually procure salvation for myself. I can weigh in the balances whether God is right or not. I can determine the outcomes of these things. And when Jesus shows up, he does not go and say that this is actually a laudable thing for us. No. He does not come up to us and say, hey, the skeptical mind is a great mind. No. What he says is, those who truly seek the Lord have no skepticism about Christ. Why? Because they recognize the words, they recognize the works, they recognize the mission and the intention, the timing even. All of these things drive people to depend upon Christ. And that is exactly why John includes this. So watch how this works with this crowd. Jesus has just come off of this teaching, which is warning them about this reality that if you truly follow the Lord, then you will follow me. And if you truly follow the Lord, you will not judge by appearances and just what you hear and just what you see. No, you will judge with right judgment. And right judgment doesn't come from you or me. It comes from God. What has he expressed about these things? What has he said to his people about his coming servant? That he too will judge with right judgment. Not just by what his eyes see or what his ears hear. No. The signs that he was doing, expressing the nature of the salvation that he was bringing. The people in Jerusalem there in verse 25, they were saying in the temple, is not this the man that they seek to kill? One thing doesn't make sense to them. If the rulers know that this is Jesus of Nazareth and they know that he is a false teacher and they're seeking to kill him, why aren't they seizing him? He's teaching in the temple during the Feast of Booths in the hearing of all families. And for some reason, the rulers aren't able to get him. And the crowd looks at this and they said, here he is, he's speaking openly, and they can't even answer him a word. They say nothing back to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? What a remarkable statement about their leaders. Not because the leader, this is not, a, this is not a, uh, a mark in their favor. This is actually quite against it. It seems to be that maybe they know that this is the Christ and they're not aligned with him. That's a remarkable thing to see. Can it be that they actually recognize who he is and they're just not telling us? Can it be that they're actually jealous of his ministry? And they look at this man who is speaking there in the temple in the hearing of all and saying, they're saying to us when we go to synagogue that his teachings are wrong. But as soon as it comes to him out in the open, they don't say a word here at the temple. Maybe they know who he is. 
Maybe they're lying to us. Maybe they are leading us astray. And then some of them start to reason. They say, yeah, but, but we know where this man comes from. Nazareth. We know where he comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. They're not talking about his birthplace. They all knew that. That's in the prophet Micah. They're talking about the reality that it would not be obvious in their worldview, if you're familiar with some of the background of this, if you're really curious, uh, the book of Second Esdras in the, uh, in the Apocrypha talks about this, that they anticipated that the Messiah would be completely unknown until he establishes his glorious kingdom. And so this was kind of a belief in the world at the time, that Messiah would first be identified when he establishes the throne of David in Jerusalem and all nations will see it, boom. The glory that enraptures all of that would be similar to the establishment of the Temple of Solomon. And they're saying, if he truly is the Christ, then our theology is wrong because we're able to deduce who he is beforehand. You can see humiliation starting to take over. If he's truly the Christ, then we've been wrong about how to anticipate his coming. We've been wrong about some of our interpretations as well. This is one of the things that, in fact, all people who followed the Lord were caught off guard by the advent of Christ. He did not come in a way that anybody theorized. His first advent was a complete surprise, except for his birthplace, Bethlehem. But the mode of his coming, what he was coming to do, what he actually came to do, the dying on the cross, the resurrecting from the dead, nobody anticipated. Nobody We were all wrong about his first advent. As a side note, I think all of our theories are just as lacking on his second advent. Christ always surprises in the way he fulfills his promises. It's always more grand than you and I imagine. It's always beyond our perception. That is the glorious thing about following Christ, is it is not defined by how greatly our imagination has established things. No, instead, it is established by our humble following and submitting to him as he continually surprises us by how amazing he is. And this is one of those aspects here where they're looking around, they're saying, wait a second, have our leaders led us astray? Is our theology off? Is everything wrong and he's right? What a humiliating thing to have to face. What if Christ is standing in front of us and that, in order to admit that, means that we can't trust our leaders, we can't trust our rulers, and we can't trust our own assumptions about theology. How humiliating is that? Now this is, don't miss, happening during the Feast of Booths to, to, the, to the Jewish world at the time. This is as jubilant a season as Christmas is to us. So this is like coming to Christmas morning and finding out, oh, by the way, happy Christmas, you're wrong about everything. And the plan of God is far greater than anything you've ever thought of or imagined. That's a pretty hard thing to swallow on one of the happiest times of the year. This is happening during the Feast of Booths, a week-long celebration that everyone looked forward to every year. And so they started reasoning, oh, I can't be. We know where this guy's from. He comes from Nazareth. As everyone knows, nothing good comes from there. It's just this little town off to the side of like 300 people. We know his parents, Joseph. We know his mother, Mary. We know his brothers and his sisters. They're here. It can't be. 
It can't be that this is the Christ. Verse 28. Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, Yeah, you know me. And you know where I come from. And there, here's where he mixes his words. But I do not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him. For I come from him, and he sent me. And so then the leaders were seeking to arrest him. We'll come to that in a second. What is his answer to this conundrum for them? They are expressing this idea of, if he truly is the Christ, then we're wrong about things. Think about John writing this. He's writing to you and I. He's writing to everyone that would come and want to know who the Christ is. He's saying, yes, I know. As you're reading through this gospel, reader, if there's aspects about Christ that don't meet your expectation, you're on the wrong side of it. If you want to weigh who Christ is, that's the wrong approach to this. His truthfulness is not dependent on your perspective. Let's put it that way. Him being right is not contingent on you recognizing it. He is right if you never lived at all. He is right if we never recognize it at all. He is right before the Gospel of John is written. He was right before anyone knew his name. And this is how John writes. He establishes this reality that that it does not appeal to the perspectives of man. It doesn't even appeal to the teachers in Israel, the theologians, the rulers. No. In fact, John puts forward that those in the crowd who recognized Christ did a far greater work than any of the rulers that day. Those who were not learned, those who were able to simply see his words and the consistency they had with Scripture, those who were able to recognize his teaching, his works even, and say, look at these signs, look at what they are talking about. Look at what they're leading us to. He turns water, something that's necessary for life, into wine, something that is an expression of the enjoyment of life and the blessings of God. Look at what he does with bread. Look at what he does with a lame man. He's giving abilities in places that people don't have abilities. He's restoring people in a very creation way. He's walking on the midst of the waters during a storm. All of these signs have been mentioned in the Gospel of John, expressing to the reader, this is the Christ that they were wondering about. And the same question should be sitting in our minds that happens in verse 31. If he's not the Christ, then who in the world could be? Does anyone have greater signs than him? Does anyone have greater words than him? Does anyone have a greater identity than him? Christ's answer to all of this as he taught in the temple is to say, you know me. You know me and you know where I come from. And there he speaks of just his human experience from Nazareth. They are well aware of who he is, who his family is, and where he came from. He was Jesus of Nazareth. And then he switches it on its head and says, but I have not come of my own accord. In other words, the will I'm doing is not my will. It's another one's will. And his will is true. 
He who sent me is true. And you don't know him. I know him. For I have come from him and he sent me. That is a tremendous statement. A tremendous statement. This is no commissioning of a prophet. This is no description of why he came to the Feast of Booths from Nazareth. No, he turns it on its head and says, On the whole, you think you know me, but you don't even know God. And he's the one who sent me. You don't know him. I know him. I know him personally, experientially, directly, eternally, before the world was. Listen to that claim he makes about himself. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. And so they were seeking to arrest him. Man, look at this. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Anytime you see in the Gospel of John about the hour of Christ, it is speaking most immediately of his crucifixion and resurrection. The hour is an expression of focused judgment and salvation. It is taking the the picture of the day of the Lord, which is a day of great judgment and salvation, and focusing it in on something that's about to happen temporally. His hour is going to approach. And that hour is going to be found on the cross, where full judgment towards sin is carried out and full salvation of those who will be saved, is enacted. That entire transaction happens on the cross. And what Christ is expressing here is, there is no way that happens before the will of him who lives forever. The entirety of the rulership of Israel can set their teeth against him in the temple while he openly speaks and they are not even able to answer him. This is what confused the crowd so much. If they're in control of everything going on here, Why aren't they arresting him? A valid question. A valid question. Even his own brothers were mocking him about this. You seem to want to be famous. Go to Jerusalem. Speak to everyone. Jesus says, my time is not yet there. Your time is all the time. Mine isn't. His time is defined by the same thing his works and his words are defined by, and that is the will of the Father in heaven. And friends, that should not just be true of him. It should be true of all those who call on his name for salvation. That what we do, what we desire, and what we say comes from him, not us. We will know whether our works or our will or our words are from him or from us. That which comes from mankind divides and destroys. That which comes from God brings life to those who trust in Christ and it brings calls to repentance on those who don't. Because the hour had not yet come, 
for the rulers that were seeking to arrest him and for those who were in the crowd that were likewise seeking to arrest him, no one could lay a hand on him because the father had not willed it to be so. There was an hour set aside for that. There was a day set for that. And on that day, what we call Good Friday, not a single person laid hand on him without the father designing it to be so. That was his hour. That was his appointed time. The apostles pray about this in Acts chapter 4 if you want some homework. And they address this reality that Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Pharisees and everyone came together in Jerusalem to do exactly what the Father had intended to do. That he may work both judgment and salvation at the same time at the cross. A remarkable statement of how it is that God saves his people. He doesn't do it on our timeline or on our time scale. He doesn't do it in the way that we expected. And even when Christ came, he didn't come in the way that anyone anticipated. And again, as the Gospel of John is a book primarily about evangelism, this should inform the way we evangelize our friends and our families. If you think that you can just say everything right and that will save your hearers, you will be very disappointed. God saves people. You can't. He saves who he wills, when he wills, where he wills, at the time he wills, and in the manner he wills. It is us to be faithful It is him to save. And if we are to go into evangelism, and I can say this just from firsthand frustrations, if we go into evangelism thinking that it depends only on us, we get very, very frustrated because the reality is it doesn't. And if you can trick people into becoming Christians, they're not becoming Christians. It does not work that way. Here the establishment of these things is that Christ is not who sinners anticipate. And unless God is drawing them, he is not one that they would go to. He even said this in the previous chapter. Unless the Father is drawing you, you can't come to me. He establishes for them that expectation that if the Father is drawing you, John says, you certainly will come to him. And if you are coming to him with an honest and true heart, seeking who he is, may I encourage you, God is already saving you. Nobody seeks God on his terms. Nobody seeks Christ as he is. With honesty, with truth, and with intention to be wrong, unless God is already drawing you in. Take great comfort from that, please. Because if God is saving you, my friends, nothing can condemn you. If God is for us, thank you, say it loudly, who can be against us? It is God who justifies. Who is left to condemn? As it is for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Why? Not because their works and their words and their Thoughts are perfect, no, but because Christ is. 
And his works are sufficient. And his word is true. And his will is ours now. What is it that the people answer to this? Some were seeking to arrest him in verse 30. But none of them could lay a hand on him because his hour has not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. And here we see the bifurcation in the crowd that John is presenting us with. Those who reject Christ end up hating him. Those who do not reject up end up loving him. Many believed in him, they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? In other words, this is enough. God has spoken. It is on us to believe on him. God has worked. It is on us to depend. My friends, as we live after the cross, the same establishes for us. God has worked through the cross salvation. It is now on us to depend on him. It is ours to believe. And John has said this many, many times when the crowd comes forward. And what do they say? Teach us what it is to do the work of God. And Jesus says, this is the work of God. This is the will of God. That you believe on him whom he sent. And live not a life that just is interrupted by sleep every night. Less sleep some nights like the previous one. And then you wake up again. Try to seek out whatever food or money you can make and then lay your head down on your bed, hopefully with a bit more food, hopefully with a bit more money. Eventually the food will run out and so will the money. Eat, drink, and sleep and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? And Christ says, no. I came to give my people life and that much more abundant than that. Much more abundant than that. And the life that we now live is not even defined by just pursuits of these manners. This is what the Gentiles seek after. No. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Don't Don't look at this world as the source of your happiness or the source of your life. You won't find it here. This is what every one of these signs are showing us. Don't look to wine to solve that, no. Don't look to bread to solve that, no. Don't look to your abilities to walk or speak or see. That's not what Jesus was doing all these miracles for. He was showing us our lack and our need for him. We need to be able to see the gospel with new eyes, to hear them with new ears, to speak it with new tongues, and to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that our hands may do that which we do not desire, and that our hearts may desire what God desires. That is how far we are from the gospel. That is how far we are from the holiness of God. And the law shows it to us over and over and over again. And still there are those who see nothing but pride when they look at their own life. Christ says no. No. To look at Christ and to think that we stand over him as judge and jury is a proof that we don't even know the Father. We do not stand over Christ, my friends. He stands over us.
when his hour came, it was the greatest meeting of God's judgment and salvation the world had ever seen. On that cross, God was judging the sins of the world and pouring out his wrath upon his son. Not many people like to talk about that. But you better be happy that that was dealt with there because God does not turn a blind eye to sin. God deals with sin. He will not let a single infraction go. Why? Because he is holy and he is just. And so Christ himself, creator of heaven and earth, came and bore the sins that we committed and bore the wrath of God on our account. That wrath that we earned. And on that day when all that wrath was being poured out to such a degree that the sky itself went dark. The outcome of that judgment, the outcome of that wrath was to save his people from their sins. Judgment and salvation meet in the person of Christ. And when we see descriptions that his hour was to come, that was to show us the reality that judgment was going to be brought to him. I don't know if many of you, when you were kids, ever did anything wrong, but I did. (laughs) And I remember there was an anticipation, and my father's in this room, so I get to tell this story. There's an anticipation. There's kind of this whole day-long anticipation that you're going to have it dealt with. But then as the day waxes on, it kind of narrows into an hour when it's going to happen. I remember when I had to tell my dad once. So I'll, I'll let you know this story because it, it, it puts me squarely in the sinner category. I was playing hide-and-go-seek at church one Wednesday night. And uh, I thought it would be the coolest thing to hide in a, um, a, a bathroom stall. Who's ever going to look in there? And, well, as it turns out, my friends were going to, and they were working through each one as they go along. And as soon as they came to mine, I stood on the top of the tank in the bathroom stall, and I jumped over to the other side and landed on the other toilet. And wouldn't you know, I, didn't, I wasn't really aware of the fact that toilets were pretty brittle, and that when you jump on them, they immediately start spraying around the entire bathroom. Now, to my 11-year-old mind, this is the worst thing that has ever happened. Nobody's ever fixed a toilet. Nobody's ever gotten a bathroom soaked or anything like this. And I didn't even know that there was a drain in the floor, and it didn't actually cause that much trouble in it, you know. But I had to go find the janitor and let him know and establish the, the, the shame that, uh, that befalls you when you do that. But I remember anticipating telling my dad about that that night. And that was kind of one of those, um, it happened during the morning, actually. It wasn't one of the evening ones. I don't really know what was happening. But as the day drew to the close, that, that window of when that was going to happen got slower and narrower and narrower and narrower until there's a, there's a moment of judgment that's going to come down. And Christ is speaking in the same way, where he's saying, Not yet, not yet, not yet, my hour's not yet, but soon there will be a moment when all that judgment is going to rain down, right? Now, my dad was very kind about this, paid for it, and then made me pay for it. So, (laughs) 
which was great. By the way, I've never broken another one since, at least not on purpose. So it worked, thanks. But in all of this, Jesus is speaking about this in a manner that says, while you think you may exact that revenge on me, you can't. Nobody, and we're going to learn this in the Gospel of John, nobody's going to take his life from him. He says, nobody's going to take my life from me. I lay down my life of my own accord. I lay down my life, and I have the power to pick it back up again. Remarkable stuff. And what Jesus is expressing here, what John's telling us is, as that moment of judgment approaches, nobody can hasten it. It comes exactly when the Father has determined it to come. Friends, the same with evangelism. You, if God has you involved in evangelizing somebody, your family members, your friends, acquaintances, you can't hasten on that moment of judgment and salvation in their life Not by one single second. It is yours to be faithful. It is God's to save. And when you go out and evangelize, when you express the gospel, not if, when you express the gospel to those who God brings upon your path, do not lose heart at supposed failures. Just be faithful, my friends. Give them the God in whom all life is. And from whom all mercy flows and all judgment. That their delight too may be in the fear of the Lord. And that their wisdom can begin there. Don't you know this? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God must be mighty in your gospel message. In Hebrew... I don't bring the original languages up here much, but when it's a fun thing and a good picture, it's good and helpful. We say to make God great. Great is the Lord. In Hebrew, another way to translate that is heavy. God is heavy, substantial, overwhelming. Heavy is the Lord. Greatly to be praised, substantial, higher even than the heavens, greater than the foundations of the earth, the one whose word made all the things that we see. That's the one that we preach. We don't preach the one who goes, well, I know you sin, but I guess I'm okay with that. No, he's not. He was so not okay with it, he sent his own son to die and face his wrath in our place. If he was just okay with sin, then the cross is meaningless. He's not okay with sin. He deals with it. And we must proclaim the gospel the same way the apostles did and establish the same reality that Christ speaks of here. Either Christ will be our priest and our mediator and the source of all life and mercy, or he will be our king and our ruler and our judge. That is hard to hear. But it is the gospel of Christ, and many will stumble upon him. Many will fall and be utterly destroyed. But those who trust in the Lord, those who believe on him whom he has sent, will have strength unknown to them and abundant life that we cannot imagine. 
my friends, find yourself in the second half of this crowd. The first half seeks to put him to death and wasn't capable of it because it wasn't the will of the Father. The second half believes on him and says, what he has said, what he has done is enough for God. It's enough for us. Find ourselves there. Let me be that encouraging voice. Let's pray. Our Father, as we have on so many other occasions, we thank you for Christ. He has demonstrated himself to be not only the example to the beloved, but Father, the very object of our faith, the one in whom we hope. For we know that you have sent him, that he has done your will perfectly, and he has spoken your word truly. Oh, Father, we desire these same things for us, that we would do your will and we would speak your word faithfully. Not so that we can trust in ourselves, far be it from us, but Father, in humility of mind, we aim to walk in a manner worthy of this gospel. We know that that is a job given to us that we are not fully equipped to handle. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for one another. We pray that we press one another on to love and good works, especially as we see the days drawing to a close. And Father, should should this world go on for another thousand years, we pray that we hand these things down to the next generation faithfully and that we lay our heads in our grave with anticipation entrusting our souls to you, our faithful creator, while we do that which is right. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of the Spirit of God who draws our hearts ever closer to Christ. We pray that we desire and delight in you and that you give us right desires in our hearts. We pray this in your Son's name for the glory of your kingdom.